Welcome, everybody, to episode 36 of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. I'm your host, Bo Richards. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. How you doing, Dan? I'm doing well. Hope everybody else is doing well as well. I agree. I agree. Um, so I wanted to start the beginning of the podcast with two things. Uh, the first was to make a shout out to uh, one of our buddies, Sean Carter, uh, for pointing out uh, a mistake that we had made last week in, <laughs> in discussing something in jujitsu. Um, Good job, we Sean. Referring, thank you for that, Sean. Uh, he actually apologized. He's like, "I don't mean to be an a-, you know, sorry if I sound like an asshole." And I was like, "No, you're you're fine." Um, I, you know, I like learning new things. So we were referring to um, what Janet, John Danher calls a trap triangle, which is just the one arm in, one arm out position where your legs are locked um, as the top lock, which is actually a separate thing um, that is uh, specifically uh, for arm bars when you have both arms inside of the locked legs up over the shoulders. Um, and so that, that was the difference there is that and he was like, God damn it, Bo. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I would say for the listeners, if, if you're having a hard time imagining it, um, if you're somewhat familiar with the triangle shape, hence the name of the triangle, the trap triangle is more of a diamond shape. So it's before you get your ankle underneath your knee and your mm -hmm. ankles are more crossed. Uh, I, for that reason, I personally prefer or to re prefer to refer to it as the diamond just because it's still in that shape context. But yeah, Donaher refers to it as the trap triangle. Yeah, versus the top lock, which is when one arm is actually outside of the legs and one arm is in. Um, or sorry, refer, reverse that. The, tr the top lock is when both arms are inside versus one arm being out. Right. Um, this actually brings me to the second thing. Because um, uh, in your explanation of this, you were actually were uh, uh, talking about a mental representation that you have of... Uh, of the, the techniques and the concepts that we're discussing, which uh, uh, reminds me, we both have, I actually just finished it, but I know you started the book Peak. Fantastic. Um, yep. By uh, Eric Anderson. And um, no, that's not his name. I'm forgetting his full name. We'll link it in the description. Um, uh, but I believe his last name is Anderson with multiple S's in it. And um, I'm wondering, have you had a chance to finish the book yet? How are, how are you? Uh, how are you doing with it? Have not finished it yet, and it is Anders Ericsson and there we go. Robert Poole. Yes. Um, so I, I had his first and last name uh, mixed up backwards. Yeah. So <laughs> I've got uh, two and a half hours left on it. Um, okay. It's absolutely fantastic. And I think, you know, we, you and I have discussed a little bit um, accelerated learning type topics, um, you know, and this is right up that alley. Uh, and it's been fantastic for me in reading slash listening to this book to get some of the more up-to-date information on the topic. Like I had mentioned Gladwell um, and mm -hmm. the, you know, the 10,000-hour the rule, which is a bit oversimplistic, but I think it still adds a good context for what's necessary to excel. Um, and this addresses that, you know, basically um, one of the authors, it might have been Anders, um, put out the original study which Gladwell read and kind of morphed into the 10,000 hour rule. So then he goes back and said, yeah, you know, he was kind of on the right track, but these are the differences and the important distinctions. So yeah. it's not simply 10,000 hours. There's a bit more to it, uh, you know, and this is why. Um, so that's, it, it's nice to get the, the current look at some things I, I thought I'd understood. So it's nice. Yeah, no, I thought that was very interesting. And um, cause I've, 
I grew up hearing about the 10,000 hours rule as well. And, you know, Bruce Lee's got the, that famous quote that's, that is similar, you know, I, what is it like? I, I, I don't fear the man who's kicked, who knows 10,000 kicks. I, I fear the man who's kicked, has done one kick 10,000 times or something like that. Yeah. Um, and, but, uh, yeah, it was it was definitely kind of it was definitely interesting to to hear it from uh, what's the phrase from the horse's mouth as it were. Yep, um, the yeah. guy who went through and and also it was nice for him to break down the points that either Malcolm Gladwell just simply actually missed or didn't touch upon in his book. I haven't read his book. I think it's the book's called Outliers. Yes. Um, so I'm not sure what exactly all he doesn't go over, but it is nice that the main author of that study that Malcolm references is like, Hey, he missed a few points. These are the points. And basically we talked about this a lot last week. It's just simply that it's not doing something that isn't enough. It's doing something deliberately with the purposes of continually growing um, yep. and becoming more proficient at what you're doing. And those are like vastly different things. Um, well, you know, it's funny you mentioned Bruce Lee because he touched on that concept as well. Uh, in another one of his famous quotes, uh, the, the the common saying, practice makes perfect, that is not accurate. Uh, and Bruce Lee corrected that by saying, practice does not make perfect, practice makes permanent, perfect practice makes perfect. And yeah. that, that's kind of the, all, all that distinction in a nutshell, bang, right there. Not only do you have to practice, but you have to practice perfectly. Yeah, it's... Uh one of the things that really resonated with me, um, and if you got about two and a half hours in the book, I imagine you're on chapter like seven. Does that sound about right? Uh, it's two and a half hours left. I'm not sure what the total read time on it was. I, I'm guessing I'm maybe two thirds, three quarters through it, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And so he, he, the, the rest of the book, he's going to spend kind of going over a few examples of, of, of the things that he's noticed and, uh, um, and so it, it stays in line with the book. But uh, one thing that, that kept coming back to me in my own head was, um, you know, I was a salesman for an insurance company for uh, eight years, just over, I think, eight and a half years and something something to that effect. And uh, let's see. Yep. Eight and a half years. So I started March of 2011 and then I ended August of uh, 2019. And. I had to work really, really, really hard to become moderately competent. And then when I changed jobs from my first shitty boss to my next boss, who eventually became pretty shitty as well, um, the job was a little bit easier because I was really the only one who had any any kind of competence at doing the job. Mm. But then I plateaued and had to work really, really hard to get better. And I was with that boss for about six years. And I actually had to... I didn't really think about it until I read this book, but what I would do is I started to read books about how to um, influence people and like how to do sales and stuff. Uh, and then I started to develop, but more than that, cause I didn't really retain much of it more than that. I actually started to develop different types of processes for being more efficient at what, what I found worked. Right. And so mm -hmm. there are different ways that people sell things and how they present themselves to another person when they're doing sales and, um, and whatnot. And I think you actually have to find what works best for your personality type and for, for how you are as an individual. Like there isn't one end all be all sales, right? right um, yep. 
you know, otherwise we wouldn't have used car sales. <clears throat> like, because they're going to do the things that other people don't want to do. Let's use like the, the sketchy used car salesman. Like if that stuff is the only thing that works, then everyone would be one of those. Right. But obviously you have different types. You, you need to really figure that out. And, and I went through a period of doing a lot of those similar things just in order to actually make enough money to pay my bills. And it made me feel like shit. And um, I hated it, but it was necessary. And uh, I, I started to write down what I did and how I did it. Um, I started to revise all of the emails that I used and that my boss recommended I use to send to prospective you know, insurers mm-hmm. um, and stuff, prospective clients. And then I started to measure the feedback, like how many times, if I sent 50 emails a day or made 50 phone calls or 100 or whatever, how many people answered? How many people didn't answer? How many times did it go to voicemail? Um, I would actually record how many times it rang before it went to voicemail. Hmm. Right. Because on cell phones, anything under over one ring and under like three rings is someone seeing the ring and clicking end call. Right. So it goes to voice. So it goes to voicemail. So I know someone's ignoring the call versus does it ring seven times or does it not ring at all or rings once and then it goes to voicemail which tells me that the phone's off and so i could track that sort of thing um so i could get a better idea of when to call what like what time during the day and should i stop calling people because they're hanging the phone up and um that dramatically increased my ability to sell Mm. um i saw and i did this like two or three times in 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 the span of like a six seven year period moving on from that boss to an, another set of bosses who are also terrible. Um, if anyone out there is interested in going into the insurance world, um, I would be wary. <laughs> all, all my bosses have been like, I, I'm one person, but I've had five different bosses and all of them have severe problems. Um, I think it comes with the territory of that type of job and what it means to be an independent insurance agent. But, um, I could just have have had bad luck, but I don't think that's the case. Um, in any event, it was really interesting to like read this book and understand like I was angrily applying a lot of these practices that is <laughs> talked about. Because I was like very unhappy with my job, yeah. and but I'm driven to do better. Like I'm a person that I, I'm very self motivated, and so I was driven to succeed and to do things more simply. Um, and so it was, it was funny to read it and be like, holy shit, like I was doing this for years, like banging my head against a brick wall, trying to figure out like how to do stuff like, um, you know, a common sales practice is to make like a hundred calls a day. Which is, that, a, that was that's a, a feat. A hundred is no joke. Yeah, that, 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 that's no joke at all. And that's actually, um, really difficult to do. And, um, I knew some people who did that. And one of my old coworkers, uh, I always admired him for this, regardless of how successful he became um, month in, month out, uh, he was always able to log 100 calls. Hmm. And I always felt kind of bad when we'd have like reviews and stuff. We do group reviews or individual reviews because I, at this point, and then it even it got even less than this over time, but I would typically average or around the time we worked together, like 20 outbound phone calls a day. And he's logging one, 120, 150. But I'm consistently beating him at sales. So I didn't like worry. I didn't worry too much about it. But there was part of me that was like, I felt kind of a little inferior because my boss didn't care. My boss would just get mad at me for not calling enough. Interesting. And I was, and I always wondered how he made it work. I don't have the patience for that. Like I burn out every 10 minutes. 
after a, after a 45 minute phone call with a, with a with a potential customer or an actual customer, I'm like, nope, I'm done for an hour. Like I need to I need to recharge. Yeah. So there's no way I'm making 100 calls today. So I started to partly track everything so that I could know when to make the calls properly. Right. So I became deliberate about when I called. Mm. And I knew like there were certain people that would an- that always seemed to answer around noon because everything that we did when we logged it, it was timestamped. <clears throat> and so I'd look up the people I had called and find out when they'd answered. And I, I did a bad job of it. So I think it um, I forget what uh, Anders Ericsson refers to, but it, it's uh, not deliberate practice. It's the practice before deliberate practice. It's um, oh, it, um, it's like a, it's like the lesser version of it. That's what I was doing, essentially. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, uh, would that be considered purposeful I, practice? I think that's what it was. Okay, yeah, yeah. Purposeful yeah. practice. Yeah. And so like I had a purpose of what I was doing, but it was, it was fairly, um, self-guided. I didn't have anyone coaching me. Not, none of the bosses I've ever had have, have been able to, to coach me in that direction at all. Um, they've all been extraordinarily bad. I would say at that, um, <laughs> but, uh, which is unfortunate, but like looking back on it, I realized that like, all my bosses were telling me to do things. And I'm like, I can't like, I can do these sorts of things, but I know they're not going to work. Like you have no idea like what you're talking about. You haven't done this job in years because yeah. they're business owners. They're not salesmen. Yep. Like they're salesmen who became business owners, but they don't, they're not really in the fire doing sales every day. Yeah. And there's a big difference, huge difference between being in the bullpen and then being on the outside. And like one of my bosses, um, was in, was in their sixties and hadn't really had to do any sales for 20 years. And it's like the last time you were doing sales, like you literally were calling out of the phone book. Yeah. Because the internet didn't exist. And so it's like, now obviously my old boss understands how things work now, like, but there's still a difference between understanding this stuff and having the computer programs to make it work and then doing the work yourself. And it's like, I used to have to tell her, like, I, I really don't think you get like how it is. I do my job. Like if I can make 20 phone calls in a day and talk to 10 people, that's m- more than enough to, to make the sales that you require. Now, had I been more um, deliberate about it, I could have easily doubled or tripled my sales, which probably would have put me in the top easily would have put me in the top 1% of the company instead of the top like 10 or 15, but, mm. um, which is crazy to think, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was very interesting to reflect on like an old job and be like, Oh, I was trying to do this angrily. Um, and, uh, I managed to fumble my way through it and figure it out and, uh, be extremely successful. Um, and then it's crazy to think that I could have been even more successful had I, spent a little bit more time and effort to do so. Yep. My big issue is I didn't want to. Like I while I was doing all this, I also read the four hour work week and that revolutionized and changed my life. And I've talked about that on the podcast too. So on one end it's like I have deliberate or purposeful practice to get better. And at the same time I'm like, I want to get better so that I can work less. Yep. Well, how, but how the, good do you want to be at something that you hate? I mean, that, well, that, that's yeah. my, right. Exactly. And so one of the big things in the book in, in peak and in, in a lot of these kinds of books is that there's no substitute for hard work. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's exactly correct. And, um, I, I need to reread four hour work week again, cause it's been, a, it's been a year or so, but I think that's actually one of Tim Ferriss's big points is that in that book is he's like, look, the goal isn't to be elite 
the goal is to 80-20 life and be very competent in the shortest amount of time and then move on. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, but the problem is that there's a vast difference between those two things. Oh yeah. Enormous. You know, he, like to, to give a good example for Tim Ferriss, he was a, 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 a Taiwanese kickboxing champion. <laughs> like a, in Taiwanese kickboxing, which is a little bit different, I, ga- I gather, than, than kickboxing, like as Americans understand it. Um, he was like a world champion at that. And he practiced for like four or six months before the tournament. And you might say, oh my God, that's that's incredible. He's so talented. No. And he even says that. He's like, I'm not, he's like, I'm not talented at kicking at all. I just noticed that there was a, a cork in the rule set that allowed me to push my opponent out of bounds. And if they get pushed out of bounds three times in a match, they lose. So I intentionally learned how to kick a little bit and then to block kicks. And then I cornered them into a, the, the edge of the circular ring and then essentially pushed them out of bounds. And if no one else is doing it, you can become the best at it very quickly. Yep. It, so, it, it, I think that for me, for me, the takeaway was like he found a loophole, which, you know, you can either cringe or not. If you are passionate about Taiwanese kickboxing, it could be cringy. Yeah. But the takeaway is that all throughout life, there are such loopholes. And it's not yes. like you're fucking anybody over. That's not the type of loopholes we're looking for. But there are places where, with the given rule set, you can 80-20 your actions to an extreme degree and get a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of success with a relatively smaller amount of effort. Yeah, and right, which is which is the fascinating thing for me is I, I, I lashed onto that idea because I was so unhappy. And I was like, okay, well, I know I can get better at my job. But I don't, my, my goal is not to be in the top five or the top 1% of, you know, the company itself, because mm-hmm. I worked for the largest insurance company in the country. And so, <clears throat> and it might actually technically be the largest insurance company, at least the uh, personal lines, like for families, um, not for uh, uh, commercial and businesses um, in, in the world. It's it definitely in the country though. And um, so there's a hundred thousand employees that most, most of them do sales. So I didn't want to be in the top 1%. I was totally fine being in the top 15, maybe, maybe top 10. Like I said, um, I don't know exactly. There's no database, but there's, I have like a rough idea of how well I was doing comparatively. And, um, by the time I left, it was probably well within that. And it's like, that's good enough for me to go from a 45, 50 hour a week job. Cause I was working extra, um, on the weekends and uh, I'd stay depending on if I was teaching jujitsu or wanted to start doing jujitsu, I'd go to before then I started going to work, staying later and stuff to uh, a 25 to 30 hour a week job with the same success. So I traded in that extra time where I could have deliberate used deliberate practice to, to, to go from top 15 to, to top 1%. I could have just traded all that in and worked harder during those time frames and gotten even better. Instead, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, I'd, I don't like my job that much. I'd rather remove all those hours and spend it doing things I like and just keep what I'm doing, um, which is an interesting choice to make, to be in a position to, to make that choice. I didn't realize it at the time that that's what I was doing. But yeah. looking back, it's like I could have very easily <clears throat> said, OK, I've made my, my job much more efficient. Now let's just work really, really hard during those periods where I technically would have it free because I'm, I have 10 to 12 hours where I, I freed up time. I can just now hone my sales skills so that I can move to that literal elite where um, I'm doing what no other salesman in the country are doing. Um, I don't think people 
I think a couple of things. I, I don't think people understand that, that that is applicable to everyone and that there's a difference between those two, right? So I think most people grow up under the false impression that they don't have enough talent at a certain thing to, to do it and therefore can't and shouldn't. And that, and also at the same time that there, they also don't understand that there's a huge chasm between someone who was in the top 10 or 20% of something and the top 1%. Yes. And it's incredibly difficult to overstate how sad the first part makes me and frustrated it makes me and um, how important the latter statement makes it is because uh, Travis Stevens talks about this in basically every podcast he's in interview he's ever done. <laughs> he, he talks about how like the difference between someone who medals at the Olympics and in his case, it's judo because he's a judo guy. Um, but the difference, the, the talent gap, or not the talent gap, the skill gap, the the gap in um, abilities between the person who medals at the Olympics and the person who just goes to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Whereas for you or I, it might as well be the same person. Right. Because their levels are so much higher than ours. It's like, okay, well, um, you know, and Robert Naki actually, he made a comment about this. So uh, when it comes to new students, he said that, uh, and for those who aren't familiar, Robert Naki's a, a jiu-jitsu coach up in uh, um, Vancouver Island in Canada. And uh, he Wasn't he, was to, he in Hawaii for a while? Am I thinking of the same guy? I don't know. I don't think so. I think he's okay. always been up north, but he, okay. May, okay. maybe, maybe I'm not sure though. Um, but what he was saying, and I didn't realize this until he mentioned it, but I think it's definitely true. As he said that uh, um, to a brand new white belt or even to a blue belt, him grappling with them won't feel much like the amount of how badly he will fuck up a white belt is for them, for the white belt is no different than Kyotera or Gordon Ryan or, you know, Bernardo Faria, how bad they would fuck up a white belt minus like the size yep. difference. Cause he's like, he's like my size or your size. He's not Bernardo Faria's size, which is like six, three, two forty. Yeah. So like, there's obviously the size difference there, but they're all so much better than the white belt that the white belt won't really have any comprehension that one of the two is better than the other, like significantly because uh oh, hello. If you can hear me, I cannot hear you. We got a Zoom freeze. Yeah, your site froze. It looks Let's like. See if we can get the technology back online. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I see Bo's face moving again. Can you hear me, brother? There we go. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. All right, we're back. Your your side uh, your side froze. No, your, your your side froze. <laughs> I was moving all over the place here. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. So uh, as I was saying, though, I, to like the beginner. There's no real difference between between that. And I think Robert Nike's example was like one of my the white belt can't tell the difference between one of my purple belts and me when when we grapple because we both do whatever we want to the person. Right. And but what as you get more experience, you start to understand that, like, I, I run the table on my purple belts all the time. And then they run the table on white belts and the white belts think purple belts are good. And it's like, mm-hmm. there's levels. There's levels. And there's levels. And, and I, I don't think people, as they grow up, are, are taught truly the difference between those levels. And then also taught that they can that, that it's possible to achieve those levels. Like after reading these books, I and I've always kind of thought this, but I, I'm 
not completely, but I'm almost I'm almost completely convinced that the notion of talent as like an innate characteristic is not real. I'd push back a little bit. I'd say it's highly overrated. Sure. I, you know, sure. I, I've met people with, you know, like fast twitch muscle fibers or really fast neurology that yeah. certainly helps when they are learning new things. <laughs> no, very true. Yeah. And like um, in, intelligence is another one. Yep. Um, yep. In they, they mentioned this in, in the book Peak, but I've actually read this elsewhere multiple, multiple times and different uh, metaphors have been used. But uh, for broad strokes, all of the things I've ever heard about intelligence from people who study it, they say the same thing, and which is different than what I learned about what I learned about intelligence when I was a kid um, from teachers. Um, I always thought it was you're just smarter than everyone. But what experts actually say about intelligence is that it, it it's akin to like processing speed, yeah, like a computer processor. So smarter people have faster computer processors, but in the long run, it doesn't mean that they're going to be better at something. Right. It means you have the ability to pick things up quicker so you can get somewhere, maybe let's call it um, an average level of competence faster because becoming competent at something actually isn't that hard. It just takes a little bit of time. And if you're smarter, like let's say you have a higher IQ, you're more than likely able to get to that point quicker. Um, but in the vast majority of things that you that people who study things study when they study performance the people who tend to be the best at things aren't always the smartest in fact there's actually no correlation in most endeavors between high intelligence relative to the people around them um, or people with similar experience and success you might think that all Nobel prize winners is an example are all geniuses and they're not a lot of them aren't a lot of them have average iqs slightly above average um, I, sh- I should say average compared to everyone else who would have a PhD because PhDs tend okay. to have higher than average IQs. Um, and there are probably many reasons for that. PhDs are hard, but testing also self-selects for higher IQs. And so right. you get people in PhD programs because they can pass the tests uh, more easily and then they take the higher scores. And so like, there's a little bit of selection bias. You probably could have a decent number of people with average IQs who also get PhDs and are successful if they have the right drive to work and grow. Um, but uh, yeah, I agree with your with your point about it not being, being, being overrated. And that's kind of where yeah. I stand is that I, you know, Let's use like basketball. I'm not a big basketball fan, but let's use basketball or even football as an example. Um, no matter how hard you or I try, let's say we were really when we're really young, no matter how hard we try, you and I don't have really the body to be an NFL lineman. Right. Or I think LeBron James is a power forward. We don't have the ability to be a power forward. No matter how good I get at basketball, if I spend 80 hours a week doing deliberate practice at doing whatever it is power forwards do, you know, protect the paint shoot in the paint, block out when there's shots, you know, um, to get rebounds, whatever. Um, I'm not 6'8", 250 and athletic. Yeah. I'm just under 5'10 and 100. Right now, I'm like 160 pounds. So I'm giving up 100 pounds and a, almost a foot to people who are equally, if not more more athletic. Now, I could maybe get to their similar level of athleticism, like overall pound-for-pound pound athleticism, sure. Um, that's I think that's entirely plausible with a lot of hard work. But it's unlikely because of how that game has evolved that I'll ever be able to do that job. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, um, that's just kind of reasonable context. I mean, you, you take a guy like yes. say, say LeBron James, 
um, who is obviously insanely athletically talented, a super hard worker, like all the stuff we're talking about. But even LeBron James, no matter how hard he tried, how hard he worked, how many coaches he got, how many hours he put in, he never, never, never would be a successful jockey. Yeah. So there, it, it's, there's a context for, for everything we're saying. Um, but I think the important takeaway is um, with that in mind, if you're not trying to be a seven foot tall jockey, right? Not going to happen. Um, but if it's, if it's within that kind of reason, it is the, the dedication and deliberate work that you put in that ultimately will make the difference. Someone could be more intelligent or more quote unquote talented and get to competence faster than you. That means mm-hmm. very, very little. Just keep working and outwork them. Uh, and if you keep yep. putting in intelligent work, you will surpass them and they will wonder what the hell happened. They'll be scratching their head because they thought they were more talented, but you just straight up outworked them. That concept yep. is within virtually everyone's reach. I actually r- ran into this problem um, a lot in college. Um, and, and I ran into it in high school a little bit as well. Um, and I didn't really fully understand it until later in life. And then reading this book um, re-traumatized me to my failings as a teenager. <laughs> um, so I've always been moderately athletic. Like I, I can run. I did track and hurdles in high school. And I was always moderately coordinated in football. And um, in particular, when I was a kid, it, it you, you could say though I don't agree with this statement anymore, that I had like a, a natural talent towards athletics. Um, I think mostly what it was is I ran around a bunch as a kid, and then as I got older and was interested in football, like I learned how to move around with pads on and didn't shy away from contact. Um, and I thought that because I was decently fast, because I ran all the time, because I actually did run a lot, and like I wasn't, I actually wasn't that fast um, in comparison. I, I was an average track athlete at best. Um, by the end of my high school career, um, running, but I, I actually went through a period my junior year in high school in particular, where, um, I tried really hard from the summer between freshman year and sophomore year. And during the, my sophomore year of high school to get better at track. Cause I didn't do anything my freshman year. I did really bad. Um, hurdles were higher and then they add longer hurdles. Uh, cause in junior high, there's only the 100 meter hurdles. They didn't have the 300 meter hurdles. Mm, And so like I had to run longer distance and the hurdles were higher than I was used to. And there were girls in the, you know, high school girls in the track team. And so that was distracted. Like I was just distracted by everything. (laughs) And, and, you know, I was too cool for school and had angsty teen attitudes and didn't try and all this stuff. I started to try and I made a huge stride between freshman and sophomore year. Um, I broke the sophomore year uh, hurdle record, which wasn't the, the the school record, but it was the sophomore record yeah. for hurdles, um, almost made it to state in the 300 meter hurdles. And I was really proud of that fact. I won multiple meets, won a couple of invites. And then I improved my hurdle time by like one second from my sophomore year to my senior year, which is a, not a lot. I basically didn't improve okay. and didn't make it to state at all and was really frustrated for my last two years. And I look back on it and it's because I didn't try hard. Mm. 
I thought that I became fast and that as I would grow into my own body and more testosterone would pump through me and I'd go through puberty, that I would just naturally get faster and then I would be able to, that's what I thought. And then I look back on it and it's like, had I continued the stuff that I was doing as a sophomore, I might've actually reasonably made it to state and maybe even placed or one state. Like Washington does not have fast people in it compared to the rest of the country. <laughs> I'm, like they just don't. Sure. There's like two, there's like three claims to fame in the state of Washington for track and field. One is a Daryl, uh, John, uh, Daryl, um, Daryl Robinson, who I think to this day still holds the 400 meter high school national world record or national record. Um, there's Jaworn Hooker, who has like one of the top five times ever in track um, in, in, in the country, I think. And um, he went on to run at UW. And then there's Guinea Powell, who I think uh, got a, an Olympic medal and she was a hurdler uh, at a Garfield High School. And um, that's it. I don't think anyone else has really done anything of like legit, like crazy note. There's been some people who went to college and done well, but like those are like the main ones that people would know of. They, they've had state records for 35 years and they're all really good. Otherwise, we're actually quite slow. Very rarely do we get people who um, make their way into top 10 lists nationally. And so it's like to win a state title in Washington is actually quite easy if you work hard. And I look back and I'm like, fuck, if I just would have ran harder, like in the off season, I, who knows what I could have done. And it's like, I'm not a fast person, but it's because I don't run a lot. Oh, and it was, it's frustrating. Ah, uh, Zoom is not our friend today. All right, no, ladies and gentlemen, not. on my end, I'm still waiting for Bo to unfreeze. I don't know if the whole world is trying to Zoom right now, or maybe it's just my internet connection. Oh, Hello, you, I heard you, a little something there. There. there we go. And we're back. Yeah, we are just, we are just uh, having Zoom issues today. Yeah, Zoom hates us today. I'm going to plug in. Uh, I got a um, an Ethernet plug in. I'll plug in. Oh, good tickets. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's frustrating to look back and, and to think like, had I just tried a little bit harder and not been like a flaky teenager, I could have done better yeah. at that sport because I actually used to like to run. And I had the same thing with uh, academics in college. I skated by all of my high school and junior high and elementary school, and I picked things up really quickly. And so I didn't try very hard and um, managed to get into the University of Washington, which was a joke. Uh, they probably shouldn't have let me in, but I, I got in um, somehow. <laughs> and <laughs> I ended up you know, pulling it out of my ass and, and doing well my last year and a half there. But um, you know, I wasn't prepared for that and thought I could just skate by and get good grades without doing anything. And then I almost flunked out of college because you Gotta can't put do the that. work in, man. Yeah. yeah. Like, because everyone else is also smart and a lot of them work way, way harder. Yep. And my first two years were, my first two years were really tough. And it, it was a huge shock to me to be like, like I knew people would be smart, like it's college, but I was like, wow, I, I, I vastly overestimated. At first, I thought I just vastly overestimated my intelligence. I was like, I'm not as smart as I thought I was, which is actually probably always true. I think that's pretty much true for most people. Yeah. Um, but I look back on it and it's like, I, it's because I, like when I'd go to study hours with my buddies, I would just sleep instead of studying. So it's like, it's no wonder I failed math like yeah. my first quarter of college <laughs> because I literally slept when I was supposed to be studying, you know, because I stayed up all night drinking. 
and it's like well, that's 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 kind of in the same vein of I think this was Dick Marcinko, like old school uh, Navy SEAL guy, one of the first guys to actually write books about Navy SEALs, like back in the eighties. Yeah. Anyway, um, something he was pointing out was in Buds and particularly through Hell Week, um, and those are kind of the the training situations that are designed to break everyone down and weed out the people that just can't take it. So it's super intense. You know, uh, apparently it's the most intense training in the world. Um, I don't know. The British SAS may disagree with that or whatever, but it's super, super hard. It's Navy SEALs. Everybody associates that with badass individuals. And so the people that tend to make it through BUDS um, and actually become a proper Navy SEAL are not the guys that are, he called them the gazelles. Like they were naturally physically talented. They always did good in sports. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were just that kind of a jock type of dude. They typically weed all those guys out because, and much like you were saying, um, they are used to doing well. They're used to being talented and winning yep. and, and all that. Uh, but the, the, Navy SEAL training is designed to break everyone down and then build you up from there. And they were unable to handle getting broken down like that. Right. Versus the guys that were just little, you know, diesel trucks and they were never spectacular at anything, but you just can't slow them down. They will always keep working and they don't have an ounce of quit in them. They typically become the Navy SEALs. So it's, you know, talent can actually be a hindrance to some degree if you don't already have that type of work ethic built in. No, I I think I think that that's very, very true. Um, One of the interesting things that I found out, uh, um, there was a couple, there's been many, many large studies done about chess players. Mm -hmm. You know, chess is often considered like the ultimate intellectual, you know, endeavor. Mm-hmm. Right. It's you need to be super smart and logical to, to, to do chess. And so the, all the grandmasters are uber geniuses. And of all the studies that have been done, they've all found that that actually isn't at all true. And in fact, having a high IQ is a hindrance at the highest levels that um, if you if you look at the, the, ki- the you know, kids and teens or whatever that uh, did tournaments and were good and then went on to become grandmasters, the ones with higher IQs dropped out. And the, the, the line of logic goes, and there's no real way to understand why this is, but um, the, the, the reasoning which seems sound is that the kids who had lower IQs, and this is relative, right? The, uh, a lot of them actually have higher IQs than the average individual, but um, the kids who had lower IQs didn't do as well when they were, ki- when they were kids as the kids with higher IQs. And so as they all started to learn more, however, the kids with lower IQs worked harder. And then when it went past being able to just abstractly understand chess and do it, and it went into the nitty gritty of having to study old grandmasters games and to develop mental representations on um, around pieces in the board and how they function and how, how, how you can determine when there's uh, inaccuracies that have been made and when there's uh, weaknesses in, in pawn structure and all those kinds of things. Um, that became harder for everybody because it's difficult to do all that. And the talented players, the ones who have higher IQs who picked it up faster, have a hard time with that because they have to work harder and it doesn't come so easily anymore. But the kids who had to work, who started working really, really hard to catch up, they're already used to doing all that work. 
So it's the same for them. Yep. And so at some point they surpass all the smart kids and then continue because they start to see a lot of success because they eventually catch up and then there's no difference. Um, IQ basically has no difference um, at, at some level. There's parity and IQ has no correlation. And then they're the ones who stick with it. Yep. And, and it's like, oh, like, damn, you know, th that's crazy. For, for some kind of an endeavor like that, where you would think that IQ would have a huge difference. Um, and that's actually in line with um, what I've recently been reading about uh, success in general. Um, <clears throat> IQ, I think, is generally considered to play like 5 to 10% of the role in overall success, like a correlation. It's a very low correlation. Interesting. Um, but it, it's something like 5%, uh, like having a higher IQ is for success is generally better but it is, it's like such a low predictor comparatively to everything else that there's more than enough people who have lower or average IQs who are more successful than geniuses. Um, the biggest predictor is, uh, in psychological terms, is conscientiousness. It's essentially your ability to work hard. Yeah. And that's like a, apparently that's like 30 to 35 percent of, of the outcome of success. However, you measure that is is wrapped up in conscientiousness. So the individuals that have the ability to do repeat tasks, follow orders and get better with those things do better. And it's like, well, of course, if you are always if you have the ability to do something for a very long period of time repeatedly and engage in practice that will make you better over time. Is it a shock that you get better over time? Like, I mean, that's, that's yeah. the whole point. Well, I mean, you can take it to the, the ridiculous end. If someone is, you know, incredibly brilliant but never works on it and never does anything, well, then, of course, nothing happens. Uh, it's the actual doing that leads to your education and, and getting better at what it, whatever it is that you're trying to do. Um, and then to, to kind of fall back to what we were just talking about with the book Peak, uh, to supercharge that... It's going mm -hmm. just or going from just working on whatever it is you're doing to working deliberately and specifically and measurably on those things so you can actually track your progress. That is is the turbocharger to the person that's just willing to put in the work. You know, if you if you're not yeah. working smart, you will it will help. Um, you will get better. <clears throat> but if you work intelligently, if you work specifically and deliberately that's going to turbocharge and everybody's going to say you're talented. I, and I think that's the big, that's one of the bigger takeaways I t that I had is that um, people start to notice talent, even in kids because they're good at something and like, Oh, you have talent cause you're six. And it's like, well, most six year olds who show talent have been running around doing this kind of stuff for a couple of years. Yeah. You know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for a couple of years from uh, my best friend uh, and his wife, they have a, uh, like a three and a three and a one-year-old and um, my best friend, he, he really likes soccer. And so um, he has his, his little his son kick around a soccer ball and he's actually quite good at kicking the soccer ball around. And uh, you know, you could say, Oh, he's talented at that, but they've been quarantined with a newborn baby for a whole year with a big backyard. And so they kick around a soccer ball in the backyard. Yeah. Like that's, that's what they do to engage their three-year-old because there's no other kids around. And so is, is it any wonder that in a couple of years when he's old enough to do soccer, that he'll probably be pretty good because yeah. his dad likes soccer and he doesn't force it on him and everything. He's just like, they're just in the backyard. And he also digs holes and uh, eats dirt and, um, 
you know, likes little cars. So maybe he'll be a really good, uh, you know, a hole digger when he's older. I don't know, but, um, <laughs> let's, let's try the soccer out first. <laughs> yeah. You know, like he, he really likes to, to dig holes and jump in them and bathe in dirt. Like, you know, cause he's a kid, but, um, it's like, yeah, that what you have your kids do, if they do it enough and they, they get enjoyment from it and you praise them for it, they're going to do it more and then they're going to get good at it. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it makes me, it, it, makes me frustrated when I think about how like our current school system, how they teach kids. Oh um, yeah. And like, and how they're pushed, I think at a young age out of endeavors that they m- would honestly be good at as they get older. I don't know how to solve that problem because like, how do you, at what point do you do, do kids to at what point is it correct to, to, to allow a kid to make the decision that this, whatever this is, is going to be what they study for the rest of their lives? And at what point do you as a parent and as a teacher have direction on that? Um, you know, there are plenty of stories where kids are like, I knew I wanted to be an actor when I was five, you know, and then now they're a world famous actor, or I knew I wanted to be an astronaut and then I became one or whatever. Um, and there are plenty of stories where like, I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. And then like two years later, I wanted to be a football player. Yeah. And then, and then two years later, I wanted to be a writer and a baseball player. And then I got hit a bunch in baseball and I didn't want to be a baseball player anymore. Like, you know, I'm a kid. Shit changes. Yeah. You know, well, like th- there was so many things I wanted to do and, um, go ahead. I was, I was going to say that it, it should be more of a buffet when you're a kid and the people that I've talked to that have, um, been kind of the most natural fit and they're really passionate about what they do, whatever it is, you know, as an adult, um, typically their parents exposed them to as much stuff as they could and gave, gave loose guidance, you know, look out for these pitfalls. But other than that, uh, you know, jump in and get involved with it, whatever piques your interest right now, right now being just, you know, between 10 and 18 years old or whatever. Um, to, to experience those things, find what resonates with you, spend some time with that, see if you're, you're willing to stick with it past the easy stuff, um, and then hopefully it will become self-evident what really internally you know, draws your interest and you can dig into as a young adult to become more proficient. But to try to um, advise too early or say, oh, you're going to be a doctor, Boy, that has a very small amount of success in, in terms yeah. of who actually becomes a doctor and likes it and, and all that because their parents force them to versus try whatever you want. If, uh, today you say you're going to be an actor. Cool. Tomorrow you're an astronaut. Great. Keep looking at mm-hmm. these things. And then eventually things start percolating and, and you realize, OK, this is a great fit for me. And then, you know, a good parent will will support that endeavor as best they can, get them the best training yeah. and and, uh, and go from there. But for kids, for kids, they just got to get exposure to a lot of stuff and and not be afraid to fail at things. Like I think yeah. They, yeah, that's probably the biggest thing for me um, is what I try to instill with the kids I teach at jujitsu is like. I constantly preach to them, we're going to fail at a lot of things. Like, I actually want you to do this drill and fail. If you're not failing at this drill, not only are you doing it wrong, but your partner's not being a good partner by making you fail. Yep. Like, you both are failing because you're not failing enough. Like, 
And um, it's extremely important, I think, at that age, it, 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 when you're a kid to understand that there's not a damn thing wrong with failure. Yep. As long as you get back up and try it again. Yep. Um, was that a Destiny's Child song? At first, you don't succeed. Dust yourself off and try again. Uh, yeah, I'll take your word for that. But okay, <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going. I'm going deep. That's like the early 2000s. <laughs> I haven't listened um, to a lot of Destiny's Child myself, but I will uh, trust you on that yeah. one. Yeah, so that's deep tracks only, right there. <laughs> um, so I actually had an interesting thought, and it's not fully fledged, and it, it's. Uh, I don't think there's any merit to it. Maybe there is, but. Um, Keeping in line with peak in the book and everything, I wanted to hit a theory. Okay, uh, run, run a theory by you. So, studies have shown uh, this is as far as I'm aware, it's cross culturally, and it's most prominent, in fact, in Scandinavian countries where um, they're the most egalitarian. So, there's the most amount of uh, gender sex parity, however you want to put it, okay. um, like across the board, socioeconomically, whatever. Um, Studies have shown that uh, in like primary school, so like elementary, junior high, and high school, um, that uh, not only so, uh, young women outperform men on both the verbal and the the math, the quali- quantitative math portions of s- standardized testing. Um, they actually outperform men on both, mm-hmm. um, but they do better on the verbal, like on the uh, like writing that kind of thing. Um, than they do on the math. And young men, they do better on the math and the qualitative. And that's in, in part, of the re, part of the reason why people think that men tend to go into more math and STEM research is because they're better at that than they are at verbal. And then the question remains, well, if women are better just across the board, young girls are across the board, they're, they're, they're not even like, it's not that they're equally talented or slightly below, they're actually above men, young men in, in this endeavor when it comes to like remedial math, so basic high school, junior high math. So why aren't more women in math? And then you, you get notions of sexism come into play and then you get choice and things like that. Like in egalitarian countries, um, those divides have actually grown as men and women, young men and women have been pushed to make their own choices. And so you see more women than ever in uh, more people oriented uh, endeavors than thing oriented endeavors and more men in the opposite. Um, so here's my here's my theory. Um, to account for this one, it could, cause it could just be that young girls are picking the, the verbal aspects to follow because they're more interested in people than they are in things. And so they, they, they go towards endeavors that involve dealing with people. That's probably partly at least what it is. Um, but my thought, if we, if we utilize what we've learned from the book peak is that maybe as young kids, young boys know that they're not as good at math naturally as young girls are. And so they try really, really hard to be good at it so that they can be on an equal footing, let's say. And then as they get into um, later high school and then into college, they've already put in all the work required to like build a habit to get better at math. And so they're the ones who pursue it. Hmm. I see where you're going with that. However, I think there are some uh, missing pieces of the puzzle. Oh, sure. In, of course. Just in considering you know, the social dynamics of, of young people. Um, yep. what's going to motivate them. So in order for your hypothesis to be true, it would seem that the, the boys would want to get better at math just to compete with the girls, which may or may not be the case. They would also need somehow to have been exposed to uh, the type of work ethic that is required in order to overcome um, mm-hmm. the apparent talent gap. Um, 
So I and and then just the the social dynamics of you know young people becoming adults and and how that affects everything and, and where they want to take their life, um, or where they want to steer their life. I want to say take their life. Um, so I, I see what you're getting at. I think that would probably more apply with uh, adults that have already kind of started to settle into where they're at socially figured out some of the things that they like. And then it's just a matter of, you know, are you willing to put the work in and become a hard worker to therefore overcome people that were just relying on their talent at first? Um, but I like the line of questioning because it, it's, yeah. I, and, and I think the the Scandinavian, you know, distribution of careers type of thing really, really illustrates that there are, in general senses, this is not, and anytime you talk about statistics, this is not about any one person. So if you're listening, say, I'm not that way. That's great. We're talking about everybody. But women generally tend to, like you said, um, gravitate towards things that are more people oriented, and men tend to gravitate towards things that are more thing oriented. And there is plenty of evolutionary evidence to support why that might be. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. It's not a bad thing. I think it's, no. on, it's, it's only bad if you are forcing someone into a role that they're really just not a good fit for. Well, you know, that sucks. Don't do that. Um, but if women like going into more people-focused uh, things, then go let them do that. But if they choose not to, if your woman is really into math and engineering, fucking great. You know, yep. welcome them. But the distribution, if anything... I think it would be radically concerning in almost any field if there actually was perfect parity. If the distribution of people, say, you know, men versus women in a given occupation was precisely and exactly the same as that population, something would be weird there. That would be a red flag to look into more than uh, there being a gap. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, because. No, it, it does. Yeah, because where are the outliers? Yeah, we're the outliers, and it's 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 tr- it's assuming that every single person has the same uh, wants and desires and ambitions as everybody else. Therefore, we're all trying to get the same thing, so we have to let in an equal amount of people that all want to do the same thing, and that's fucking ridiculous. That's it, to an extent that's dehumanizing. Yeah. You know, let- well, it it, is, it assumes that we're the same. Exactly, which of course and we're that, not. That's that exactly. That, I mean, it's emphatically untrue. Yeah. Um, it's categorically untrue in, in, in large numbers of ways. Um, yeah, no, I think you bring up some interesting points. I, 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 I don't think that. Let, let's assume that my hypothesis is somewhat correct and it has an effect. Mm. I wouldn't say I wouldn't expect it to be a large effect. Yeah. Um, my actual personal opinion on that is that it, it's actually a, um, like a it's temperamental choice over anything else. Like I, I think that. Um, interest is much more of an innate thing than we realize. Yeah, I agree. Um, no, th- th- there could be social, th- I, that's not to say that social pressures don't have an effect because they do. Um, of course they do. It's impossible for social pressures not to have an effect on, um, on people, especially kids. But I've got, um, real quick, I've got an example. This actually just brought up a really flipping old memory, but I think it's relevant here. Um, talking about social pressures with kids. Um, when I was a kid, this would have been fourth grade, I think, somewhere in there. Um, we were doing a school play. It was the HMS Pentafor. 
Um, and I had uh, one of the lead roles as a, a little fourth grade dude. And I was like, okay, cool. And we got to memorize lines, which is not super easy for fourth graders. Um, and I was behind on learning my lines. So the teacher says, all right, look, you need to get caught up. If not, we're going to have this girl take your role. And I was like, dude, there's no way I'm going to let a girl take my role. So mm -hmm. I studied my lines and I got them. But just that social pressure of, you know, dude, you're going to let a girl beat you, which, of, you know, of course, that can lead in a very unproductive direction. And it's not about that. But the reality is small kids uh, growing up, figuring where they are socially and figuring out the differences between boys and girls. You can tell mm -hmm. a little boy oftentimes you don't want to be beat by a girl, do you? And that will motivate the shit out of them. Sure. You know, whether it's right or wrong, it's effective or can be effective. Yeah. No, very um, true. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's there's obviously the, uh, the, the the political correctness issue there. Right. <laughs> but no, I, I think I would agree about the effectiveness, which is um, an interesting thing in and of itself to, to go into, like what are effective motivators, regardless of their. Um, uh, Acceptability. <laughs> yeah. Acceptability. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there there's. Like as an example, there, there's uh, there are cases to be made about the effectiveness of um, you know like spanking, yeah. But you know, and there's entire generations that were raised that way, and yet I believe in basically all states. If you get see if you get if you if uh, if uh, you get turned into CPS for like spanking your kid, you'll most likely lose your kids. Yeah, you know, I mean, I in, I don't have kids, so I don't have. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't have a dog for, in the fight. For doing that, but yeah, but I can it, um, I can see I can see a point when when a kid is very very little, and, and to be clear, we're not talking about whooping a kid's ass or anything, but a little swat on the butt when a kid is say maybe two and they're doing something that is potentially very dangerous for them. They may not understand exactly why. You can't explain it to them. There's no conversation to be had. It's um, you're my little two-year-old child and I don't want you to die because you know you run out of traffic or whatever. Like something really fucking important. I give you a little yeah. smack on the ass so that <laughs> the little two-year-old brain is going to, okay, well, I don't like that, so I'm not going to do it. And then later, you know, four or five, six years old, then, you know, we can have this conversation. You don't have to keep smacking yep, a kid yep. in the butt. But if, because there needs to be something Right. And if you can't dialogue with the child to explain why you still need that result for their safety. Um, yeah. So I, I think there there's a small case to be made there. And it, again, you're not whooping sure. the kid's ass or anything. A little spank on the butt, uh, I don't think has any lasting damage either physically or mentally. And, you know, it is important that this child understands. Don't do that. Yeah. And then we can explain. No, that very later, true. So. Um, I do. So I want to go back to my hypothesis really quick, just okay. to make a clarification. Um, it probably will never come up, but I want it to be on record uh -huh. that I am not saying that um, that young boys would want to work hard to be better than girls because of sexism. Um, I'm simply saying because I, I don't want that. I could see that line of thought going coming up in that, oh, all these boys don't want don't want to feel inferior to girls because that's bad. And so as a result of sexism, they try really hard to be better because they're superior. Um, simply that if on average there's a difference there, test-wise, because there is, mm -hmm. um, those who don't do as well will naturally be motivated, maybe naturally be motivated to try harder to do better. Regardless, like 
I imagine this might act, this we probably see this play out if the the the, the sexes were flipped as well. Um, I'm merely stating that I, I think it, as a consequence of doing something that I'm better at than other things for myself, and yet other people still do better than me naturally, I'm m more inclined to try harder at that thing because yeah. it's the thing that I'm best at. Yep. Like if I'm not very good at talking or interacting with people, but I'm I'm better with numbers. And, but I'm like only kind of good at it compared to everyone else in my class, then I'm basically just a shitty student who's not intelligent and isn't going anywhere. Right. So right. like, what do I have? Why should I try it all? Like that's a, you know, the kind of the nihilistic view, the correct view I think would be like, well, if that's what I notice I'm good at and it's what I like, then I'm going to study really hard at that so I can get better than the people who are good. And if statistically in say seventh grade or whatever, that tends to be young girls it's like okay then that's who i'm gonna get better then yeah yeah well um, okay so while we're clarifying <laughs> I, I, I like i said i I, yeah. I don't think anyone who listens is really going to care but i want to make sure that if at some point in the next like 30 years someone pulls this clip they're not like see boza sexist right. it's like no I just, <laughs> the studies show that this is the case and so i'm making an argument that possibly the people who, which happen to be boys aren't doing as well but try really hard and then surpass because they continue to try hard right that could that could be plausible just for the sake of clarifying uh, my fourth grade experience, um, because context, it really is important and that gets lost a lot nowadays. But um, mm -hmm. as is, so I was the, the, the role that I had was as the uh, admiral, that is a male role. HMS Pinafore is an old ass play. It's, you know, uh, an established thing. And that's not to say that uh, it would be a bad idea to, you know, gender flip and have a woman cast in the male role. You know, that's, all, that's all fine. Um, but at this point in the mid 80s, in a classic play with a traditionally uh, male role that the director wanted to have a male role, mm -hmm. uh, would I have lost that role to uh, a fellow classmate that was a girl? It would have been a thing. Right. Sure. Nowadays, we're like, oh, okay, you cast. You know, they'd be celebrated. Oh, you cast a woman. Uh, you know, whatever. That's that's fine too. Uh, but in the mid '80s, that would have been a thing, uh, and and that definitely motivated sure. me. You know, it, it made me work hard. So, anyway, that's my context yeah. for mid '80s <laughs> fourth grade plays. <laughs> Look at us. We're uh, we're uh, apologizing before we get canceled. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Or at least try to add clarification. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still, no, I still I maintain. I think we're, we're at this point, we're still uncancelable, just because <laughs> neither of us are really on social. But I, it, this is true. Yeah, know, it, this is true. It's important. I, I think it's important to acknowledge, even though I disagree with some of what is going on in society today, I very much agree with a lot of it as well. Um, so it's not a binary uh, type of issue. So it's worth clarifying. Yeah. You know, nuance, people, nuance. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I think that that's something you know, we, we've talked about this a little bit yeah. on the podcast, but I think that um, we're losing nuance as a culture. 100%. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because it's, I mean, um, most problems that we have are multivariate. There's many issues uh, to consider. And so like, you need nuance to parse through those. You know, it's... Uh, it's a complex system, and that is required of complex systems. You need nuance. Yeah, in particular when the complex system is, um, the lifeblood of that system is humans. Yep. And we're 
infinitely complex individually. Um, and it's like, you don't get, you don't get the same person. Like, we're all, we're like, you know, snowflakes, right? Or whatever, like none of them are the same, whatever that <laughs> right. metaphor is. Yeah. Uh, I, this is a slight tangent. I used to hate, for the longest time, I hated metaphors. Really? I fucking hated them. Yeah. And I, metaphors are like the most effective tool for learning because they allow you to associate one thing with another. So you can learn something. And then whenever you think about it later on in life, you think of whatever the images you associated it with. Right. Um, it's kind of like, a, a I actually, prepackaged mental representation. Yeah, exactly. And like, I, I learned very effectively that way. And I didn't realize that's what I was doing for a long time, but I, I've discovered why I hate metaphors is because people use really shitty metaphors. <laughs> Well, th like, there's the nuance. You hate shitty metaphors. I would agree with yeah, that. It, it's <laughs> yes. just that I, I think what it was is that all the metaphors I was ever given were shitty. And so I just assumed that all metaphors were horrible. And, um, you know, everyone's like a snowflake. It's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I don't care about snowflakes. Like, I, I you know, <laughs> like, pick a better metaphor. You know, like, my God. Anyways, that's I, I, I digress. I'm done with my <laughs> with my my tension. <laughs> well, my old one of my old bosses used to have a bunch of metaphors, and I don't remember any of them. Um, probably because I used to get so pissed when she would use them. She'd use them all the fucking time, and it was all about like sales. And uh, I think she liked to use like the like a box of chocolates mm. metaphor, like from Forrest Gump. But she used like a bucket of apples, and it just like pissed me off. <laughs> And because it was just like it was like a stupid example of like what I thought was actually a good metaphor, which is the box of chocolates metaphor, because yeah. I like boxes of chocolates. <laughs> and it's um, though it's kind of wrong because you actually do know what you're going to get because they give you the label. Yeah, but, read the box. But anyways, but whatever the case, like, uh, yeah, I, I she used to have like all these metaphors and I, I used to just get so angry in meetings when she'd like spout off this really dumb metaphor. And I'm like, <laughs> no one cares about your stupid fucking metaphor. And I go anger call. A client and ah. sell them something they don't need. <laughs> well, I got to say that the, the snowflake thing, I, it was kind of like a sliver in my mind just because uh, the sheer numbers of, you know, no two snowflakes are alike. Well, if you do the math on how many snowflakes are on the planet at any given time, there are only so many configurations. Yep. And at some point, this here flake happened somewhere else. That's just you know, it's kind of like, you know, is there life in the rest of the universe? Odds are pretty good if you really dig into those numbers. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, I, my, uh, bad metaphors suck. They do. My favorite metaphor that I think I've ever heard um, was by Dwight Schrute from The Office. <laughs> okay. And um, he, uh, he talks about how... Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> he, he used to collect cat turds when he was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> okay let's see where this goes <laughs> and he says that he he like naturally one of the other salesmen is like why did you collect cat turds as a kid toy because it's really weird and he's like because each each cat turd is is, is unique and special <laughs> and they're all different <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's the snowflake metaphor but it was like brilliantly done because he's <laughs> He's like a grown-ass man who used to collect cat turds. Life is like a box of cat turds. Yeah, see, like, that's a good metaphor because it it, it follows a pattern, and it's funny. 
and it's like weird. Like it's really weird. It actually fits the character of Dwight in the show. Oh, like 100%, when yeah, they, they, yeah. they brought that in in season nine out of nowhere. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's just another piece of his backstory. That's, I could totally see him doing that when he's like seven, you know, that's, that explains so much why he is the way that he is now. Well, um, you know, that actually, that, that, <laughs> that brings up a good point, um, with regards to metaphors and, uh, teaching in general, really, but, uh, metaphors spe- specifically is that if you can use something, if your metaphor is, um, shocking or exciting or titillating in some way, it's going to be way easier to remember. Now there's, you know, PC lines you may or may not want to cross, so read the room and know your audience. Um, but if you can uh, make your metaphor something that is, like I said, just kind of on the edge of acceptable um, or kind of scary or, or shocking for some way, basically something that is emotionally charged. If your metaphor is emotionally yeah. charged, it's going to be 10 times easier to remember. Um, and that's yeah. something to keep in mind if you're trying to teach a concept to somebody. If you can spice it up, again, properly, know your audience, um, but spice it up a bit, then it's way easier to remember. Well, yeah, and I mean, we touched on this a bit last week, but that's that's essentially what Eddie Bravo's done with 10th Planet. Yeah, yeah. Is he, he just has all of his, the positions that he came up with, which are unique in their own right. You know, he, he brought names to positions that people find themselves in, but don't stop at yep right they just kind of move through them to other things and then he gave them really fucking weird names but they're memorable particularly if you know why he named them the way they did um yeah yeah, that's a Um, huge learning tool no it is and it's like it's part of uh how he conceptualizes jujitsu and it's part of what makes him so good at teaching jujitsu i think or at least um creating what he's created is that He's, uh, you know, how he did that is the living embodiment of what we see as deliberate practice. Yeah. And he actually is, he actually is a good grappler. Like he ended up getting third at worlds or something like, uh, in, in, in Nogi worlds, I think is a black belt, you know, he did either beat, I think he beat Hoyler Gracie, um, one of the famed Gracie brothers yeah, uh, or sons, I guess, technically, um, from, Elio and uh, and whatnot, but uh, for like third place at like IBJJF World or something, like in the early two thousands, like he's a legit grappler. But like how he learns is he like you need met- mental representations of things, yep. so that I, I can get to this point and I know I'm in guard. So how do I get to the guard? Well, you need to understand what the guard is and what how you represent that in your brain. So he came up with these weird names for weird positions, and then now it's easy to move seamlessly through them. I think and, that uh, that also brings up, or that's a great example of <clears throat> the importance of deliberate practice and uh, you know, kind of pressure testing your ideas. Because Eddie is you know that kind of guy that always questions how things are and comes up with different representations, then he is able to seek out new paths, new ideas, etc. Now, yeah, this manifests itself. In, in his public life, life, at least. I mean, I don't know the man personally, but heard him on Rogan plenty. And he's he's very well known, not just for jujitsu, but also for being, you know, a conspiracy theorist and going way down the rabbit hole on some pretty sketchy ideas and things like that. Uh, but I think that ties in exactly with what makes him so great at jujitsu. The difference is 
that he can employ deliberate practice and pressure testing to his jujitsu ideas. You can't really do that yeah. about, you know, Pentagon stuff and all this, you know, whatever, Illuminati stuff. That's all. There's no way to test that. So you can mm-hmm. you know, believe what you want to believe, but there's no way to, to refine that idea. Whereas in jujitsu, he can have all the crazy ideas he wants and they actually turn into a really effective system. Yeah, I still think it's too complicated, but I also haven't spent a lot of time uh, studying it. And so uh, I have more than enough on my plate trying to figure out the difference between top lock and trap triangle. So, <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm not trying to study all the weird shit that he came up with as well. <laughs> not yet, at least. Yeah, yeah there's, there's plenty to learn. <laughs> no, no, very, very true. But but yeah, no, it's, um, it's all very fascinating. I'm excited to try. And uh, I, I just started the book Flow which mm, nice. I started on your recommendation from a couple of episodes ago. Yeah. And so uh, I'll be diving into that this weekend and uh, um, to see how that works. Yeah, I'll be curious you know, to hear your makes, thoughts on that. Yeah, from from, kind of, from what I gather, just hearing about it a little bit and um, how talent develops over time as you engage in deliberate practice and become better at things, um, it's it seems to me like a positive feedback loop of yeah as you do something and you get rewarded you want to do it more and then at some point the external rewards are replaced by internal rewards yes um, for 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 most people as they proceed towards being an elite whatever um, there there will be people who only do things for external rewards but uh, generally there's an internal motivator because it's a lot of hard work um yeah and then but in, in order, as you put in that hard work, if you're optimally doing so, you end up getting into that flow state of you're optimally challenging yourself, but also optimally aware of where you're at. And so you're straddling that that Taoist line, you know, in the in the um, yin yang symbol, right? You're, you're 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 at the point where you're challenging yourself as hard as you can, but you're not lost and anxiety prone as a result. Yes. Um, and that's really enjoyable. Yeah, it's, you know, it's and, one of the most rewarding um, feelings there are, in my opinion. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and I, I yeah, and so I, I think that um, that's the positive feedback loop is that people tend to work harder once they realize that they're good at something, but it's because they've been working hard at it, and so they want to work harder, and it just continues and continues. Yeah. And then if you have the resilience, I suppose, or uh, you know, stick to itiveness, or all those other names you want to call it, I. Um, I think it's just work ethic or conscientiousness, honestly, but um, you'll push through the plateaus you hit yep. and continue to, to ascend to a higher level of, of, of practice, of being able to, uh, um, to, to do something. Um, yeah, I think it, and that's ultimately the goal. I think it's a matter of finding the thing that resonates with you. Um, and so in, in peak right now, he just started talking about motivation and he's pointing out that, more often than not, that's a situational kind of thing. Meaning if you yep. find someone that, um, you know, spent 15 years uh, training two, three, four hours a day on piano, they're an amazing pianist. Um, you may assume that they would pick up the violin and want to put in that same amount of work to learn the violin. It's not necessarily true um, and vice yep. versa. So just because someone is... Uh, has the the discipline and desire to pursue something 
and actually put in that level of work, it's not necessarily universal. There is no motivation gene, right? Um, so I think it's important that if you do find something that really sparks your interests, uh, to follow those up and, and really stick with those. Don't try and um, put in as much effort as you can and deliberate practice and all this with something that you hate. Um, unless you have to. I mean, you know, it's real world. Unless gotta, that's your motivator. Maybe that's your motivator, actually. Well, yeah, then that resonates. Then that works for you. Right. But if, if you find something that you naturally have your internal motivation, that doesn't mean it's going to be there 100% of the time, but it's going to guide you along. Um, and then you can say, all right, I'm going to be super disciplined about this. I'm going to do the practice I need to do, even if it's super boring, because I love you know, jiu-jitsu in this instance, um, and then stick with that versus you know yeah. playing golf like i gotta play all these things to learn how to play golf i don't like golf i wouldn't want to do that and i could probably improve my game but it would suck the whole time and there would be no rewards for me personally because i don't like it but jujitsu you know i'm willing to sweat and bleed for that because i enjoy it it mm -hmm. resonates with me and it's something that i can apply these principles to and have have measurable success you know if if you're doing deliberate practice and you are actually measuring and giving yourself feedback then you have that uh that reinforcement that you are in fact getting better um yeah and and that starts creating that feedback loop uh, which i think is important also in the sense that typically when someone joins a gym and they start training jiu-jitsu maybe get their blue belt they've been training with roughly the same group of people the whole time right and everybody is improving you know, it mm -hmm. might not be exactly the same rate, but, you know, if you start as a white belt and you train for, you know, four or five years and the purple belts that are left are people that you've been training with that whole time, um, it's you can't very effectively compare your progress to them because everybody's progressing. But if you look back on the, the drills that you did and the techniques that you now have mastered and all the quantifiable things, then you can say, damn, I'm definitely getting better. Or if you apply it yeah. midstream, say, well, I was, I was, you know, hit a plateau and I was just kind of been doing the same role for the last six months. And all of a sudden I'm watching these numbers change. And I'm getting better. And the rest of your peers are going to be wondering, geez, how come you're taking off so much and getting better? Um, but it, it starts with you and your personal, you know, your personal metrics, as it were, to see that improvement, to let that be that positive feedback loop to, to keep working at it. And eventually you're going to start, if, you're, if your peers are not doing the same, you will start pulling away in terms of what they're going to call talent. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the key there is it's to focus on yourself individually, not yeah. on other people. Yeah. That, that I think, um, I saw, I've seen this a bunch in, just in our gym, and we have a small gym. Yeah, I, but I, you know, I've, I've seen well over one, 200 people, but kids or adults come through the gym. And uh, that may seem like a large number to our, any of our listeners who haven't been to a jujitsu gym, but there, I would say the average gym probably has 150 to 200 students. Yeah. Maybe it just adults. I don't know, but I assume it's between one and 200 adults because a lot of programs don't actually have kids classes, but um, we don't have that. And so when we closed down, we were at about 80 or 90. Okay. And so we were quite small. Yeah. Um, total and we, uh, sorry, 80 or 90 total students, maybe at close to a hundred. And then of the adults, we had about 30 or 40. So we actually had a very small adult program. And, um, 
So those bigger programs are going to see, I don't know, 500 that people a year that come in and drop out. Maybe, you know, I don't know, yeah. maybe, maybe 200. It's a lot. Um, and I see people who get good fairly quickly and then quit because things get hard. Yep. Yep. You know, whether, or, or they get injured, but, um, and I've seen some people who they quit because they get their blue belt and they're like, that's what I wanted. And fair enough. Yeah. Like, I would prefer you stay till purple belt. So you get a little bit better, but whatever. But I've seen kids, it happens in kids in particular. Um, I notice it most with young boys. Um, they'll show up. They're, uh, not stupid or they're, they like athletics, you know, like they're, they're athletically, I don't like the term gifted, but you know, they, they're, um, they're good with their body yeah. and, uh, they pick things up pretty quickly. So they, and they're excited, they try hard. And then all of a sudden after like a few months, maybe they've earned a new belt, but all the other kids that are in their similar belts are start kicking their butt. Um, most of our, most of our youth kids are girls. We're actually, I think we're at above, we've always been at about half, if not more for we're young girls. Um, whereas the adults, it's like 95% men. So I'm not entirely sure why that breakdown is, but, um, the youth classes are mostly girls. And so what, and what typically tends to happen is that, um, um, a young boy will be good and then he'll advance. And then after a long enough period of time, he thinks he's good because he's beating up on smaller belts. And then one of the advanced girls just kicks the shit out of him which I think is necessary. That's probably a, a, a controversial thing to say, but I think it's necessary for cocky young boys to get their asses kicked. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, And I think it says more when a, a girl half their size does it than when another boy their size does it, personally. But um, That moment right there a, could prevent a future bully. Yes. Yeah, that's... Um, no, it could, also, it could also be a smaller boy that does it, too, yeah. but um, they're... Uh, I don't think people like to acknowledge this, and this is a slight tangent, but there there is a fundamental difference between interactions with boys and girls, or men and women, and um, women and women and men and men. Yeah. Like, the, the interactions are different, period. Um, whether people want to acknowledge that or not, they're, um, uh, I think Jordan Peterson said this, but, um, and I think he's actually absolutely correct. With two men, there is always an underlying threat of violence in a conversation. Now, that underlying threat may be completely tiny, and non-existent like with friends it's almost basically non-existent right. um but that is not there at all with basically all male female interactions that makes sense yeah yeah and that that, that seems uh, 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 i've this seems controversial i've heard people say that that's controversial and like wrong to bring up but it's like tell me that that's not true and so to solve those kinds of problems with young boys who need an attitude correction with a girl doing it seems totally fine for me. It's also mm -hmm. hilarious. Cause then, cause then the, the, what happens is they're like, okay, I just got my ass handed to me by like a 40 pound girl. And she just like triangle choked the shit out of me. And I'm no longer as good as I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, well, I mean, you're 11. Like, right. And you've been doing this for like nine months. Like you're not good at all. Like, <laughs> I think on, you just need to try harder <laughs> on the upside. That's a fucking awesome coaching opportunity, right? Yeah. A, a kid experienced something that it was, you know, physically challenging and emotionally challenging um, to set that and, and kind of frame that uh, in a way that will set them up for success through the rest of their jujitsu journey. 
you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, she beat you, and that's okay. She's better than you. So it's not about yeah, like who's it, bigger. It's, you know, this this is an example. So you see, you didn't want her to win. No, of course not. So if you train hard and if you get the skills, then you can beat someone that's, you know, bigger than you or, or older than you or whatever. Yeah, and it doesn't matter if it's a, a you know, a, a girl or a boy. Like, I actually don't really care. I just I just noticed that it, that presents more of an issue. Yeah. To, um, you know, cocky young boys than it does when other boys beat them. You know, it's, in uh, okay, like, Maybe that's a societal issue. Maybe I don't think it's necessarily a societal issue. I think it's partly that. Um, I think it's partly a biological issue too. But uh, that's a separate, argue, a separate conversation. And so it's like, well, what do you do with that? Like you said, it's a teachable moment. It's like I could, I could sit down and be like, you know, gender parity, and it doesn't matter, and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, to some degree, it doesn't. If the girls in classes work harder. They don't talk near as much. They don't goof off, and they work harder. And they tend to dramatically be better on puberty or otherwise. Uh, you know, uh, we have two uh, two of our green our two the only two green belts currently enrolled, but we have three green belts in our youth classes, which is the highest belt rank you can get as a kid. Okay. Or sorry, two because one just got her blue belt because um, she's sixteen. Uh, she has turned sixteen recently and uh, is eligible for a blue belt and got it. But um, they're all girls, and I actually honestly believe that all three of all of them would hands down fuck up every boy in our teen or youth program without a doubt yeah and regardless of puberty and size differences one of our teens uh grady he's like six two like 130 pounds he's like a stick but one of our green belts is like 12 because she's been doing this for a long time and she just earned that and she's young for a green belt but um i think that she would run through him even though he has f- five years four years of puberty on her and he's got like a foot on her because she's pretty short. It's like I, I, I put them together and I, I would expect her to dominate him just repeatedly. And because she's been doing this for longer and she listens and works harder. And it's like at that point for me, it's not a gender issue or a sex issue or whatever you want to call it. It's she puts in the work, she shows up every day, not once a week. You know, and she she asks questions and she fails a lot and she lets other people beat her up from time to time so she can learn. And um yeah those those moments are always fun though it's i don't ever really see that with the young girls i don't ever see the girls get cocky and are like i'm you know i'm cock of the walk i'm the shit i'm really good at jujitsu they're just like they just shut up and do the stuff yeah whereas the boys are like i'm so good like i took down the big guy or whatever and then it's like i'm gonna i'm gonna send you know my tiny quiet like eight-year-old girl yellow belt to like do a du- the dip blast double and then mount you and then choke you <laughs> so you'll like calm your shit <laughs> just just to show you that you like you really need to be spend more time like working and less time like bragging to your friends about how good you are at, at, at jiu-jitsu <laughs> <laughs> well you know i imagine there, there's got to be um a, a small biological and certainly a social component to that in that Again, in general, not everybody, but in general, um, guys are a lot more a lot more likely to peacock and brag and do all those things um, because evolutionarily that made sense in society in, in terms of you know competing for mates, whereas women tend to be a little more you know if they're, if they're going to if they have ill intent for another woman it's going to be a little bit more gossipy and at that social yeah. level of you know kind of at the extreme of backstabbing or whatever 
versus a guy is more upfront and braggadocious and willing to engage yeah. physically. Um, yeah, I, I think there's there's some evolutionary evidence to why that may be. No, very true. Um, I'd be curious. I actually would be curious to see. I don't know how a study like this would be done, but I would be curious to see if how much of that could be socialized out of kids. Um, My guess would be, yeah, I'd be curious about that as well. My guess would be most, but not all. Yeah. Cause I, I understand a lot of the argument about it being like toxic. Yeah. Um, like it, I, it, I, it gets get fucked up really quick. I think it's, like, oh. yeah. Oh, are we freezing I, again? I think it's, Oh, you're back. Okay. We're good. Can you hear me? Yep. Yep. Go yeah. ahead. I, I, I think it's overstated, but I like, like it's made more of a deal than it actually is, but I, I still, like, I get the argument. I still think it's a problem, but it also isn't clear to me from what I've read about the evolution of it, that it's something that we have a whole lot of control over. Um, you know, women are the only like human females are the, like the, cho- the only like choosy female mammal in like history. Like they're like the choosiest. They're the only ones that like selectively choose their mates. So what you're saying, like human beings versus all the rest of the mammals, the women are the most choosy about their mates. I I believe they're the only ones that are choosy. That may be wrong, but if if it is wrong, they're the the most choosy. Like women are incredibly selective. Yeah. And basically all their mammals, the ones who mate with the females are the ones who essentially chase everyone else away. I think, or yeah, you know, or the other the other option is is they they in some way like showcase their prowess maybe actually by peacocking or singing or whatever else and then the females flock to that one. I think there's um, there's something to some, that. Yeah, yes. Yeah, now there are some species where the women will mate with whoever they don't really care, and that's I think that's where the violence comes in. Is that the the more violent or the the more powerful of the the, the males will chase everyone else away and do all the mating. But there's uh, I think that's that's the case with like apes. I believe that the f- female apes or chimps, maybe it is, is that they, they just don't care who it is. They'll just mate with whoever when they're in heat. And it's like, whatever. Mm. Um, I think uh, female lions are the same way. Um, they just require much more sex. But uh, uh, than most mammals, they, they want copulation like 30 times a day or something. It's like it's like an absurdly high number. It's, wow. it, but anyways, um, yeah, like f- women, the human, human females are uh, extremely choosy. I wish we could get and, and, Brett and, and Heather fair, to weigh in on this. No, I, and they've, they've actually talked a little bit about this. I forget which podcast. It's been a long time since I heard them talking about it. But it's, it, and it's no wonder, like, look at men. Like, if I was a woman, I would be, or if I liked men, I would be choosy too. Oh, well, like, do I, you, I mean, I'm just, yeah, it's the, in, in the mating sense, it, it seems, seems freaking obvious. It's like, who you choose to mate with is going to affect you know, for sure nine months of your life and then essentially the rest of your life after that, so choose wisely. Whereas a, well, there, a yeah, male there's... can spread DNA and bounce and that's well, perfectly that's the thing fine is, for them. Yeah. So, Yeah, like evolutionarily, right? Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. it's like the, the the evolutionary cost for women is higher, so it doesn't it isn't surprising to me that they would naturally be more choosy. Like that, that seems self-evident to me based on the fact that women are the ones stuck for nine months with the baby and then depending on where they live um, and the law is 18 years to raise the thing. Yeah. And so it's like, that's a big cost. So like, if you're not choosy, 
like you know you, you become a single mom <laughs> like it's yeah. just, or or you become a, in a relationship with someone who's and it's not good and so it's like fair enough and i'm not complaining about that like i think that's actually correct like and but i think as a result of that um you see odd behavior by men in an effort to be chosen yep Yep, And you see the corrupt side of that, which is men doing a lot of really dumb things, um, really bad things, uh, things that um, in the long run don't actually work. So uh, uh, Barney, Stinson, Barney Stinson style uh, dating tactics from How I Met Your Mother, you know, like oh, yeah. <laughs> things to, to to get women on the short term, you know, so essentially to get laid, but um, in the long term don't actually work out because they're the one night sort of thing. Um, and I think it's just a corrupt manifestation of uh, of um, what men have been trying to do probably for eons to be chosen. And it's essentially to show that you're you're worth spending investing that amount of time with. Yes. Um, now a lot of this, we're going to see changes. I think maybe not, but we probably won't even see it in our lifetime. But there will be changes because of uh, birth control. Um, because for thousands upon thousands of years, this sort of thing has evolved. Because when you have sex, a woman gets pregnant. Like full stop. There's been no like the way to stop that is to like historically has been to um basically do cyclical fasting oh okay because most most of our ancestors were hunter gatherers and and for a very 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 long time and then they developed agriculture mm -hmm. uh, but up until that point like human body fat content was super low because they chased game meat which isn't very fatty and so they had a lot of protein and there's no they weren't growing carbs because they didn't have agriculture. So they needed to get, when they had low fat content, women don't have periods um, in particular because they're low calorie, low, low fat uh, intake. And so, it, it, and they run a lot and all that kind of stuff. It, it can affect them, how they, um, yeah. how they have their menstrual cycles. Well, and so I guess historically, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess historically, like that actually is how um, societies practiced uh, um, safe sex, mm. not getting pregnant. It's like they, they wouldn't, they would intentionally do that um, while staying as healthy as I suppose they, they knew how they could um, so that women would have like maybe between two and four menstrual cycles a year. Wow. Okay. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's frequently as just, or as common as just once a year. Um, and that was their birth control. Now we live in an age where that's like in, basically impossible. You, have, we, we have way too much, an overabundance of food to do that, right. in, at least in America. Um, Your calories don't so, run away from you. Yeah. Right. And so, um, but we're at a point where, like, basically any woman in the U.S. in particular can just decide to never have kids strictly by taking a pill. Right. It's like, that's that's a crazy thing. Like, the the investment required to find a mate is basically gone at this point. Um, and fair enough, like, maybe there's some goods to that. It's like, that allows women the freedom that men technically have had forever yep. to engage in... Um, uh, uh, you know, short-term uh, uh, sexual exploits, but I'm I'm curious to see the uh, uh, the ramifications of that because I mean there will be consequences like just like there is with anything like this isn't like it's just only a good thing right um, I'm curious to see what the what the consequences of that are both evolutionarily throughout time but also with our society like say in the next generation or two or three um, with that because that lack of choosiness may just end up going away potentially i mean i i, I think you're, you're you're spot on um and i'd be very curious as well so even like 200 years after the invention of the pill 
which was that 60s or 70s somewhere in there i think it was in the 60s, 60s. yeah um so yeah fast forward a couple hundred years after that um to see how sociologically how men have changed how they peacock differently obviously we'll still be competing for mates but has that changed the the tactics that men use the change of tactics that women use um yeah and then also we've got a layer of technology on that you know read you know tinder and bumble and all that kind of thing so that you know women can uh flip through a lot of different choices and uh sample them without risk of mm-hmm. getting pregnant and uh it's an entirely different selection strategy whereas yes. prior to the pill um it could be you know you mess up one and done that's it you know, the first person you ever had sex with, you kind of liked them, uh, and then now you got a kid, so bang. You know, you're, you're, yeah, right, which is, in, in, I mean, even still with that, that's infinitely better, I think, than how it was before then, which was your mate was chosen for you and you were stuck. Right, yep. You know, so there's been like small, or I would say fairly large, but seemingly slow in our terms, um, evolutions, right, from you have literally zero choice to you have a slight amount of choice, but it's still less choice than you would like. And then with the, the pill, it's you have, uh, you know, the panoply of choices now. Yeah. And I, you mentioned like Tinder and stuff like that. I, I think that that I, I would be my contention is that that those sorts of things are actually a manifestation of what we're discussing. Um, oh, yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. It's a layer oh. of technology because that enables that process yeah. to be that much more efficient. So, yeah. And I, yeah, I think, um, it, yeah, it's just simply it's born out of that, that that freedom of choice. And it's like, OK, fair enough. Like, um, you know, if this is what you're looking for, like you create an app to find that and then you're going to find a plethora of men who will do it. But then you also have these the um, the unfortunate culture of that, which is. Um, What's it, catfishing? Is that a common thing? I think that happens a lot. Yep. Um, or, or just like, you know, sh- shady men in particular who are aggressive on these kinds of apps simply to have sex. And it's like maybe women are going there to have sex too. I, from what I gather with Tinder, that seems to be the case. I don't know anything about it, so that could be wrong. But um, as I understand it, it's mostly just designed for people to hook up. Yep. Um, and so, but that doesn't excuse the, the, this, it, this behavior that uh, you know young men engage in when they're overly aggressive because they assume it's somehow appropriate i don't yeah it, but i think that's part of the probably part of the evolution of that freedom is that you see um these new tactics as uh, um, bad as they are coming out to see how they work and i don't mean like individually like i'm going to try these things and if they don't work i'll change like that probably happens but i mean like as a society as like a group of people um you're going to have groups of men who are like this seems like a, a thing that would work and men are dumb, so they do it, and it doesn't work. <laughs> Dude, no, you're totally right. And it, it, at some point, eventually, but, you know, essentially every tactic will be tried, and the things mm-hmm. that women like, those will succeed. Therefore, they will happen more. I mean, it's it's very adaptive, um, yeah. and it's uh, yeah, it, it allows different things to be tried, different tactics to be experimented with. They will work or they won't, and it will adapt from there. Uh, no, yeah. very true. And um, on this point, uh, the other I actually see a, a big issue as well um, that coincides with this, and that is that uh, statistically, 
young men are enrolling in colleges at lesser rates year by year. And it's like pretty dramatic differences. Mm. Um, I, I think colleges are like 60% women now, something oh, like wow. that. Okay. It's, it, it's either getting close to that or rather like it, it's a, it's a big difference. And, um, and more and more women are going into grad schools and that's great. The more women going to college is great. Um, you know, less than a hundred years ago, I think like 3% of women went to college. So it's like, this is awesome. Um, now there's more women in colleges than men, which is awesome for women and for the men that are in colleges because then they have more choice to be with women if they want. Um, but and by it, the numbers, right. they are in higher demand. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And so like, if that's your thing and you're in college, that's great uh, for, for, so for everybody, um, but assuming heterosexual relationships, of course, but um, more women are enrolling in graduate programs as well and getting uh, a PhDs. But we're also running into the problem that um, there are less suitable men for women or and if you want to include same-sex partners, it, 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 it's fairly similar, I think, with, with uh, gay couples in particular, like uh, uh, gay men couples in particular. But uh, gay men tend to be more educated than straight men. Um, so I don't think it holds as well. But in particular with heterosexual couples, there's less men are going to college. And so college women and uh, postgraduate women, women with like masters and PhDs, have less to choose from if they want a man of similar stature, which seems to be the yep. case. And that isn't always the case, but uh, I guess from the studies that have been done, they've shown that women tend to date at or above where they're at economic, socioeconomically and four years older. That That's about an average. So you're looking broadly looking okay. for some uh, a man um, who is m- essentially makes about as much as they are and is as educated and is four years older than they are. And it's the in, you know inverse for men. The four years younger and uh, either equal to or slightly below economically, socioeconomically. Um, they call that hypergamy. Uh, why, I don't know necessarily, but there's probably a lot of reasons, cultural and otherwise, for that. But um, if you assume that those numbers are reasonably correct, then you have a bunch of educated women with not enough men to for them to date, assuming they would want to go into that kind of a heterosexual relationship. I could see that being a problem. How much of a problem it'll be, I have no idea. But it, it, like, there's a very clear problem that like I could identify. Like, if, if those things are all true, then this would become a problem at some point. We'll probably see it soon. Um, I don't really take Instagram or Twitter too seriously, but I have actually seen on multiple occasions with no Twitter account whatsoever. Um, I always see funny little things that are posted on Instagram from Twitter where people are complaining about there's no good men who have master's degrees or stuff. And they're like, you know, why aren't there any good men left? And it's like, because they've already been married or they don't have the education you require. Like, (laughs) right. Well, and that's, I mean, that's not even a new thing Uh, with the city war. um, If uh, all the men in a village go off to war and most of them get killed, you you know, you get that same kind of uh, out of balance ratio women to men, Um, which I've heard um, Dr. Heather Hying explain that that is an evolutionary, uh, we'll say, reason or, or stimulus or whatever uh, for lesbianism, where, you know, if, if all the men have died yeah. off, but you got kids and two women can pair bond to raise a child, that's super effective. Like that, yes. you know, that, that works and, and solves a number of problems. Um, 
but yeah, it's it right now the the college system is uh, way out of balance in terms of women versus men, and I'd be curious to see what ultimately ends up um, being deployed to balance that out. I won't say deployed because that sounds yeah. intentional, but what what ends up balancing it out? So, or if this, or if enough time as we see time goes by and we did we did we discovered that it actually our previous studies are wrong and it doesn't matter because i mean like i don't care if women go get masters and phds and then decide that they don't mind dating men who only have a bachelor's or high school diploma like i give a fuck oh and and yeah that could very well be it you just gotta lower your standards so yeah sure and however you judge those and it's like whatever like it doesn't matter to me how people like each other like um, i'm just simply pointing out like what it is the data apparently shows um you bring up two interesting points though which is uh, because studies have apparently very clearly shown that um uh sexual orientation is extremely malleable comparatively in women Mm -hmm. as opposed to men Um, there's not there's always been malleability but it's much more pronounced in women than it is in men um they're fluid i think is actually a technical term that's used and uh, you know then it gets co-opted uh, as gender fluidity and the like but it, it's very common with women and i'd be curious to read more or listen to heather talk more about that from an evolutionary standpoint because that that seems to attracts to me like that would make sense yeah um men are much more likely to die in basically every scenario ever um, yep. <laughs> so men do everything dangerous yep. and men do everything stupid and like they die from, you know, and so um, the other thing that's interesting uh, that you point out is um, about the commodity issue is that um, there's been, po- uh, I think we talked about this early on the podcast, but um, maybe we didn't, but uh, um, with the, the, um, increased risk of uh, african-american men in particular getting incarcerated because um, you know, they, they get incarcerated more uh, on average mm-hmm. than uh, from a population standpoint compared to to, to, to white men um, they're naturally less african-american men in the african-american community which makes the men that are there a commodity yes. unless you know african-american black women want to date men of other races again assuming heterosexual relationships so um one of the theories postulates that part of the um, the reason you see uh, essentially part of the reason you see more um, single mothers within the African-American community and why you see more young black men engage in um, polyamorous relationships or just have multiple sexual partners but don't commit and have multiple father multiple kids is because there's so much less of them. Um, compared to the african-american female population that they're a commodity they know they're a commodity and they can get away with the behavior yep 100 percent. right and um which is yeah and it's very interesting and it's like okay like that that tracks too like that that isn't far-fetched to me to think okay well there's only a few of us and so i don't really have to do much to get attention um from people that i'm attracted to yeah because there's just less of the people like me um in this case, you know, black men. And so my incentive to stay around is what now, you know, and that's a priorities issue too. Cause it's like, if, if you want to settle down and have a family, then you pick and choose, you can be choosy about who you settle down and have a kid with. And then you, you stay with that person. But um, if that's not what is um, what you prioritize. And I think that as a culture, not necessarily let's say as a African-American culture, but it's like as a, as a culture in the U S um, settling down and having a family doesn't seem to me to be a priority that our culture 
has at the moment um, and has had for, I don't think it's had it for a while. And so I get, it, it's not shocking to me that young kid, the young boys are like, okay, well, I just have as many girlfriends as I want. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. Um, again, I don't know if that's at all true, but it, the, the argument makes sense to me. Um, I, I'd be curious to, 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 to see more data on it, but it's like, I, I could, I could get there. And if that's the case, that's actually a problem, you know, of course, because for many, many, many reasons, but, um, Anyways, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, I forget where I heard someone. I heard somebody talking about that and, and just kind of postulating through those those issues based on the numbers. And uh, um, ooh, here's some numbers I'd like to see. So let's say in a uh, given group of people, um, a you know small town or whatever, whatever, where the men go off to war, fight and die. So now we have the situation: more women than men, by a, a noticeable margin. Then the next we'll say the next generation and the generation after that is there a disproportionate amount of males born so does that ratio start to balance itself out just by factor of how many boys are born versus how many girls are born i wonder i do too i i i don't know the answer exactly but i believe it does globally okay but not locally um, maybe it does, but what comes to mind is China. Yeah, China has drastically more men than women. I I, I don't know this for certain, but I believe it's seventy thirty. I believe that to be the case. Goodness, I, it's something like disgustingly off kilter because of their 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 uh, their practices about uh, having sons only, and they actually you know will either give away or kill off their daughters. And they've been doing that for a long time. That was the uh, the one so child policy, right? That was what drove all that. Yeah. Was, yeah. Only yeah, allowed to and, have one it, kid, so if you're going to do it, it might as well be a boy. Yeah, because of, of their caste system yeah. and how, how they view boys and girls. And so, but that hasn't been fixed for a long time. Like, it's still a problem. And so maybe, like, at the height of it, it was 70-30, and it's, it's, it's changed. I don't know if they've changed their practices on that. But, um, but the global population, there's slightly more women than men. And so at some point globally, like, it definitely tilts. Um, well, I was just wondering. So in a, I know that in a more localized example, though, where because yeah, globally that I, that I don't know, it has to be w- within whatever um, you know, whatever tribe or, or your your group of people that you actually interact with that you are living yeah. in and experiencing the gender imbalance. Does that in some way affect the likelihood of having a boy versus a girl? I would have to imagine that on some. That's a tough one because on some level it's like that's like a cosmic issue where like there's like a cosmic force that's like okay you need to have a boy because of X. Um, it could just be a biological understanding within a woman's body yeah. to to favor the the potential for uh, having a male. Heather would know this. Yeah. Heather Hying would know this. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's very clearly something. Otherwise, yeah. I don't know. Like it would be hard to predict. Like it would be hard to assume that or see how we would get the even numbers that we have. Right. You know, like on some level it would, because they're like you were saying earlier in the podcast, like if there was parody, there would be an issue. Right. It's like, well, in this case, like because there's basic gender or sex parody across the globe, it's like the issue to me would seem to be that there probably is something biological or evolutionarily that is driving this, that we're just not aware or we're not able to understand. Um, I don't know that to be the case, but um, that that's interesting uh, to contemplate. 
it wouldn't surprise me given how complex we are as systems and as yeah. you know as humans as, as species like we're we're very 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 complex and so the fact that there's some overarching evolutionary structure that also helps guide um how we procreate wouldn't surprise me at all that that actually seems fairly uh unsophisticated in comparison to like how our nervous system works, you know, like, right. I, <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's a situation that has to have come up a whole bunch of times where maybe it's a hunting party or maybe it's a war or whatever. Something wipes out a significant chunk of the male population of a given group. Like that's gotta be happening yeah. all the time. So there has to be some sort of, uh, way that that balances out. Hmm. We'll have to look that up and yeah. go over I'm actually interested. I'm probably going to look up what, uh, what Heather has to say about it, if anything, um, her and Brett do. So, looking forward to their book. I think they're they're hoping to publish like fall. Last I heard, obviously COVID threw a wrench okay. and everything. But sure. um, the hints that they've been dropping on the podcast when they're like, "Oh yeah, we talk about that in the book, whatever." It's all good stuff. So I, I think a bit of what we talked about today, uh, they'll be talking about in their forthcoming book. I don't even know the title of it, but whatever it is, I'm gonna yeah, no, get I'm, it. I'm a, <laughs> yep. No, me as well. And so uh, that, that'll that be a lot of fun. Um, so we're at uh, two hours. Should we uh, call it for the day? Yeah. Yeah, let's call it. I think it was a good convo. That was. We made our way from uh, the book Peak all the way to uh, biological, uh, evolutionary sexual preferences. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite quite the, the wide swath of stuff to cover today. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a good transitional uh, discussion. So uh, thank you, everybody, for... Um, for listening in today, we hope you enjoyed yourselves and we hope that you have a good rest of the morning, the afternoon, or the evening. Take care, everybody. See you.